How are you today? Everyone doing great, fantastic, wonderful. How about that wind? That wind, there was a tornado in Sarasota. I'm telling you, nobody warned me. They said there's hurricanes. Nobody said there were tornadoes in Florida. That was a little bit weird. It uh, reminded me of my road trip over here when that tornado hit in Oklahoma, and I thought I was going to die. It was one of the most exciting times of my life. Uh, well, if you are new, welcome. My name is Ryan, and I'm your pastor. We are glad you are here. Today, if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Acts chapter 15. If you want to flip ahead there, Acts chapter 15. If not, it will be up on the screen behind me. If you have a fake Bible, you can open that too. We accept fake Bibles, real Bibles, but we want you to get your face in the book because that is God's word versus just me talking because my 34-year-old wisdom is not very profound, but God's word is profound and transforming. Man, this week is so exciting for me uh, as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. We're one of the last teams that were in the playoffs, and it's not looking good for us. We're, we're playing the Broncos today, and, and Peyton Manning is going to be playing, so that's my only hope is that we can just jack that old guy up before he uh, <laughs> scores too many touchdowns on us in Jesus' name. But uh, it's probably bad to pray for your team in church. And Jesus died for all my sins, all of them. And I got a lot, you guys. So let's... <clears throat> Yeah, you know, God says, I have not because I ask not. So, Lord, let the Steelers win the Super Bowl. That's not, I'm not going to do that. I take that back. I take that. I take that back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you care for your church, your capital C, spanning the ages, spanning ethnic backgrounds, spanning culture, church. God, today, give us eyes to see clearly how we are to interact with this world that's changing at the speed of Twitter. Give us ears to hear and a mouth to speak grace into the lives of others who differ from us in opinion. We love you. Change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of Europe combined. This Sunday, there are more Anglicans in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda, then there are Anglicans in Great Britain, where the Anglican denomination started. This Sunday, there were more Presbyterians in Ghana than in Scotland, where Presbyterianism was founded. This Sunday, more people attended the Yoido Full Gospel Church, which is one church, than many entire denominations in the United States. That church is made up, estimated, of over 750,000 people. One church. Could you imagine the nightmare logistically when you're trying to plan a potluck for 750,000 people? This Sunday, Roman Catholics in the U.S. worshipped in more languages than any previous time in history. This Sunday... The churches with the largest attendance in England and France had mostly black congregations. About half the churchgoers in London today are African or African-Caribbean. This Sunday, the largest church in Europe is in Kiev, the capital of the Ukraine, and it's pastored by a Nigerian Pentecostal preacher. This Sunday, more Catholics worship in the Philippines, that's my people, than any single country of Europe. That's today. Our landscape is changing so much. Christianity is no longer confined to the Western civilization. As a matter of fact, it is rapidly growing in cultures that are not in the Western culture. 
and it's changing the way that we do spirituality. And today, what I wanted us to look at, the state of the church, because we see the news report. It's estimated that sometime between 2050 and 2070, Islam will become the biggest religion in the world. Right now, it's about, give or take, 20% of the world's populations claim Christianity as their religion, and Islam is fastly catching up to that. Part of the reason, of course, is that they uh, have kids. They have kids uh, at a much higher rate than we do. On average, they've got three kids per family, whereas now in the, in the West, average Christian homes are having about 1.5 to 2 kids per family. I don't know how that works, but it's, that's what I read this week. And not only that, if you leave Islam, there are many Islam-run countries where leaving Islam means you can get killed for that, and we haven't practiced that yet here for Christianity, although it's tempting as a pastor. Like, if you leave, we're showing up. I'm sending my biggest guys over. No, we wouldn't do that. This is the South. People would actually take me seriously, and I don't want to do that to you guys. All, all the guys are like, I got you. I'll go, Pastor Ryan. We'll do this. Yeah, no, you, you're laughing because it's true. Because someone next to you are like, is it him? Is it him? And it's the old guy with the cane who's probably got a gun inside of it because we're in Florida. The church landscape is changing. The landscape is different from 100 years ago when the majority of Christianity was European and North American. Now 20% of Christians are African. In our lifetime, there will likely be more followers of Jesus in China than there are humans in the U.S. And this is God's bride. God's bride. And for as much as I, I try to show the areas of religion that have stifled us and burdened us, man, do I ever love the church. I love the church, but sometimes I think we get stuck in our own fishbowls. You know what I mean by that? Uh, I, I love spearfishing. I haven't done it for a long time, really since I was in Hawaii. But now that I'm in Florida, I'm going to get all my gear again and start spearfishing. And I love spearfishing for a couple reasons. One is um, I just love the water. When I'm in the water, I feel like I'm at home. But it's an entirely different world. Outside of the water, I'm, uh, you know, we are humans. We're kind of like apex predators. We eat mostly what we want. Not too many things mess with us, except for maybe the occasional fish hawk boar. But when I go into the water, in Hawaii it was tiger sharks. Like, there's an instant change of status. On the land, I eat what I want, do what I want, go where I want. When I go into the water and go out away from the shore, I'm no longer at the top of that pyramid. There are other things that would like to eat me and could eat me with ease. And here, it's bull sharks. That's what I hear. And I, um, I messaged somebody today who's an avid spear fisherman. I said, hey, I'm getting back into this. Where should I go spear fishing? And he sent me these Google map pictures. And, and he sent one on Facebook. Here's the picture. And then he sent a little caveat underneath it. This place is great. Go off by this outcropping of rocks. Here's what you're going to catch. I'm like, great, sounds good. Next picture, boom. Oh, try this one. It's really cool. But watch out, there's resident bull sharks. Okay, no thanks. Because because I know where I stand. I know that if I'm underwater and there was a shark that looked at me, I'm, I'm a fairly sizable hometown buffet. Like, I'm not a five foot eight little person. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good couple of ribs and some femurs. I, I see that. But when you're under the water, there's something that happens where you start to realize that it's not the same rules that, that exist above water. When you shoot a fish underwater, if you don't have scuba gear, you have to get to the surface to breathe or you die. When you're underwater and something that's about your size or even half your size swims in the corner of your eye, fear will flutter in your heart. And there's nothing quite as thrilling as the first time you're cave diving in Hawaii and you're looking for fish to eat for dinner and you dive down and you, don't, you just snorkel, mask, no scuba, 
and you dip, dip your head in a cave, and all of a sudden you see a shark face to face, about as big as you. And you pray, dear Lord, I hope sharks sleep with their eyes open. And you back up slowly, and you tell your little brother to go down there next. Because <laughs> you want him to experience what you just experienced. There's nothing quite like experiencing a new world. And right now, that's what's going on in Christianity. Right now, our Western version of Christianity is on the brink of colliding with global Christianity. Whereas we are from a Western mindset, the air we breathe, the water we swim in, the bowl we see in is a certain way, and, and that's our view of Christianity. And let's just illustrate this by a show of hands so we could get our diversity. We have a very diverse group of backgrounds here. So how many of you grew up thinking it was not okay to dance if you were a follower of Jesus? Anybody? Anybody? A few people, Right? Okay, now I don't know what you did with the passage about David dancing in his underwear, my life verse, but that's churches that taught that. How many of you grew up thinking um, and believing and, or doing or practicing that the gift of tongues exists? For those of you who don't know what that is, that's a gift where you speak in a different prayer language that's not English. Okay, so right now you have the, the non-dancers, and when you raised your hand, all the Pentecostal types were looking around like, you're missing out. But then you've got the, the tongue speakers, and all the Baptists are looking around like, you crazy. That's what's happening right now. But not only do we have the differences in theology, we have the differences in how we interact with each other. Back in the uh, 50s, 60s, 40s, around that era, the front porches of houses were built larger and people actually used them. People would sit on them and wave to their neighbor. Hello, neighbor. Nowadays, the porches are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It's a little sliver, just enough for a welcome mat. And none of us says hello to anybody. And I'm as guilty as you guys all are. I, I literally will get out of my car and I'm just beelining for my door. And my neighbors, I'd be like, hey neighbor, see you later, boop, duck in. I've got neighbors now that I've known for, for eight, nine months, and some of them are here today, and literally, I cannot tell you very much about them. Although I do have a camera going out of my front window so I can tell you what they do a lot of the time. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. I do have a camera, but I don't look at my neighbors like that. As for my mailbox safety, old story. Christianity in our world has been filled with that idea of this individualized, it's all about yourself, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. And now as the gospel of Jesus is breaking into these other countries, they believe vastly different things and they have different values. For example, um, my people, for those of you who don't know or are new, I'm half Filipino, I know I don't look it. My dad is about 5'8", built like a gorilla, darker than the night. Um, my mom's 5'10", in German, that's what I got, obviously. But my dad's side of the family, Filipino, we are communal type people. We eat with our hands, we'll eat off. We don't ask if there's food on someone's plate that you want, you just get it. But it's not like rude, it's just expected. Like, we feed each other. And there's a different sense of community that happens in Asian cultures, in Latin American cultures, and that's all that I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with as many other cultures. But, but now they're taking the good news of Jesus and they're making it community-oriented again. Now, let me tell you, in western, suburban, Pleasantville, Florida, we want you guys to get plugged into the community, but I get it. It's hard because we're supposed to put up all these barriers. We're supposed to say, no, let's just keep it at a distance. I don't want anyone to actually know what I'm struggling with, what I'm going through. I just want to go connect with God and then go home and be done and, and go about my week. But now in the African churches, in some of the Latin American countries where the gospel is spreading, they have a wildly different worldview, and we need to learn to begin to embrace that and hold on to what is the core of what we have in Christianity. So let's, let's start reading. We're in Acts 15, chapter 1. 
here's what's happening. There are some groups of people here that are trying to add rules to Christianity, and this original council, the Jerusalem council, they're going to hash out some issues that are differences, because we all have differences. There are still people in here today that may believe that, uh, that dancing is not right. There are people in here that say that tongues is right. Some say that tongues can't be right. There are people in here today that would say that we should only sing songs from this era, and some others would say we're only going to sing songs from this era. There are some people that believe that the King James Bible is the only Bible that we should read, rather than the ESV, the NLT, the NIV, the NASB, the 100A, BBBBBs. But I want us to focus on the core of Christianity because that's how we're going to have to navigate as we press into this global church culture. And here's what's going on. Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So here's the deal. Paul and Barnabas have been going around. They've been sharing the good news of Jesus. Non-Jewish people are coming to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit's filling them. And then there's these people that go to their city, Antioch, and they say, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you follow this particular custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, and they debated with them. And then they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. This issue got so heated that they needed to have a council with all of the leaders of the church. And we've all heard this. Unless you believe exactly as I believe or behave as I behave, you are not saved. This is very problematic, however, when the good news about Jesus spreads because cultures will adapt the good news of Jesus in a way that is unique to them and maybe strange and different to us. For example, uh, there are cultures that have ancestry worship. Now, do I think that we should go around worshiping ancestors? No, I don't. But as the gospel spreads through areas in Japan, there are cultures that have done that. So now instead of worshiping their ancestors, they, they incorporate reverence for their ancestors into the faith in a way that we don't over here. And it's, it's pretty cool to see that kind of thing happening. What happens when we try to take our version of Christianity and put it on another culture is what you see in a lot of the African churches today. In Africa, the average temperature is well above what I call Florida hot. Yet, we have a massive influx of assemblies of God and Presbyterians that are taking the good news of Jesus to Africa, praise God. However, they're also taking their three-piece suits and songs written in the 1800s by old dead white guys. And I'm going to tell you from experience that I saw in India, there is nothing weirder than seeing somebody in 97-degree weather and 130,000% humidity wearing a three-piece suit, singing a song by old dead white guys, and then going and being their normal self after that. It is a weird thing. It was weird to see how they would jubilantly sing their own songs in their language when they were just having fun hanging out, but then at a church service, they would suit up, sweat out of their gills, and sing a song that, that they were so removed from, it didn't stir up affections or passions. That was an odd thing. And we're, we're exporting our version of Christianity and saying this is what it means to be a Christian when that is not what it means to be a Christian. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. Everyone go like this. One hand open, one hand closed. You got it? Okay. Now, in your closed hand, 
I want you to think about this week the things that matter to the core of Christianity. These are the non-negotiables. These are the things that we cannot let go. These are the things like God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the only way to, to get right with God is that Jesus died for you. We don't change on these things. These are closed-hand issues. Now, these are open-handed issues. These are, when are the end times happening? What style of worship is the right style of worship? Now, here's what I'm tired of seeing. Here's what Christians tend to do, and it really bothers me. We usually take both hands as open hands, and we slap other Christians around when they disagree with us. That's exactly what we do. I, you're laughing, I'm not, because I have to read the comment cards. Well, can we just do, if you don't do this song, if you do this song, if we sit this way, if we do that way, if you do read this version of the Bible, man, if someone tells me to read another version of the Bible again, I'm going to use both close hands. What I need us to do, though, is have grace. If you go on our What We Believe page, we have a very simplified version of what we believe, and every church should have this. We believe that God is the Father, He is loving, He sent His Son Jesus to die for sinners like you and me. The Holy Spirit then fills the people that come to Jesus by faith. And then humanity, we're in a train wreck of a of, of place. Sin has infiltrated, infected, and jacked us all up, but Jesus reaches down, pulls us from the swamp. But then at the end of our what we believe phase, I have this big old clause about non-essentials. And it says this, if something's an open-handed issue, don't fight about it within the church. Don't go around slapping people because they have a little bit of a different view than you. I, I love that I, uh, that I have tattoos because there's people that say that Christians can't have tattoos. And you, I'm a Bible guy, so I'm always going to go back to the Bible. So when people say Christians cannot have tattoos, then I, I always like to tell them when Jesus comes back, when Christ, the Christian leader, comes back, he's got a tattoo on his thigh. It doesn't get more scandalous than that. Like there's the tramp stamp and then the upper thigh tattoo. I know, whatever, I'm out of control. Blah, blah, blah. Send me an email. This is an open-handed issue, and people have slapped me around for it. One of my elders at the church, when I got the tattoos, said, you know, I, I don't think that tattoos are biblical. And I said, I don't think that's biblical. You know what we did there? We both had an open hand. He, <laughs> Guess where we got? Nowhere. That's where we got. Sometimes we, we have different views on the end times. We have different views on, on gender and sexuality. And, and some of these views, they get close. And there is gray areas, there are areas where we have to fight for, we're going to talk about some of those. But I want us to begin to think, for us, what is the core of the gospel? Because as the world changes, it's going to have to become more reliant on what's in the closed hand and fight less about what's in the open hand. We're going to have to come together around people who have radically different beliefs and views from us. We call those timely methods, but we'll never change the timeless message. And let's keep going. Open hand, closed hand. Because here we have this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you will not be saved. This is a Jesus plus something mentality. And it plagues the church today, just as it plagued the Catholic church and led to Martin Luther, the German guy, not the civil rights guy, to protest and lead to the schism of the Protestant and Catholic church. It is extremely easy to become dependent on things smaller than Jesus to make us feel like that's what gives us our salvation and security and worth and value. Let me give you an example. Um, Jesus plus church attendance. We've done that one, right? 
Some of you know that when you miss church service and then something bad happens that week, you will say in your mind, whether or not out loud, I don't know, you'll say, this is because I didn't go to church this week. And we have this view of God like he's up there with whips just waiting to crack on our lives. I, I have a newsflash. In Jesus, God is not mad at you. Just remember that. Let that banner just soar over your life every time you blow it. And, and I want every time you blow it to be a reminder that Jesus died for that because he loves you that much. Not that he's waiting to crack the whip and just get you under his thumb one more time. But we, we like to add things to Christianity. You know what's coming up next year? My favorite season in American culture? Well, it's a big event. Anybody know what's coming up next year? The elections. Where Christianity across America is going to collectively lose our minds. Lose our minds. I... Um, I'm going to share a few stories. You can laugh or not laugh. It depends on which political party you're a part of. I was part of one church where somebody set up a table without asking the staff to register to vote. But they only let you register if you're a registering Republican. They had pre-filled out some of those cards. That's Jesus plus Republican. Now, that's not what we're about. Uh, I've, I've been at a church where if you admitted to being anything other than the Lord's chosen political party, which is independent, by the way, because Jesus is independent, that's what I'm saying. Uh, if, you do, if you register for anything that, you would get shamed on the patio. And people would literally come and tell me, I'm afraid to talk about politics at this church because of the overwhelming belief in a party that's not my own. Now, Jesus is not a Republican, a Democrat. He's not an independent in the way that we check the box. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. There is nothing in our world that he's like, well, you know, this is really what I favor. He favors himself and his people. That's what he favors. And this next year, oh, I mean, I'm going to watch the debates. I'm going to read the pundits just because I like to be depressed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share memes that are going to be obnoxious, and some of you are going to block me from your Facebook feed. Thank you. But I need you to know that Jesus plus politics is a distraction. Jesus plus worldly success is a distraction. It's okay to be successful. But if your version of life is, I will have all the hope and worth and value I need if I have Jesus plus this salary. If I have Jesus plus this relationship. If I have Jesus plus my kids get this grade, that grade, this achievement in sports. If my life is that, Jesus plus this, that will get me happiness. If that's your math formula for life, you will end up sad angry, always wanting, always wondering why the things you're doing aren't fulfilling. And I've seen it a hundred times play out. I've seen parents who get distraught when their kid don't, doesn't quite get the SAT scores they thought they should get. I've seen marriages where one spouse puts the pressure on the other spouse to be their worth and value and hope. You know what that, that person's doing functionally? You're saying, I need you to be my Jesus. And here's a newsflash. None of our spouses can be Jesus. As awesome as some of our spouses can be, they will let you down. If your spouse hasn't let you down yet, it's because you just had your honeymoon like three weeks ago. That's the only reason why. If, you, if you've been married longer than like a couple minutes, you know that your spouse will let you down. And if you're saying, I'm getting my worth from them, I'm getting my approval from them, when they let you down, your world will begin to crumble. And I've seen it happen a hundred times. Or when it's some other thing when you're craving the, just the affection of other people around you and you don't realize that all you have is in Jesus, you'll become a slave to those people's opinions. And, and we've seen those people. They're the people that 
like you and me. They're the people like me. Literally today, I put on this denim shirt because I'm in my 30s now. I'm not cool anymore. Like, I get that. Like, my wrinkles, they're not going away when I stop smiling. My hair is getting gray, not just on the sides, but on the top. It's receding. It's retreating. So I put on my shirt. I thought, I like this today. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. It's got a little leopard print in here, feeling fresh. I'm going to get a watch on today. I put my watch on, and I realized there's no battery in it. It's just for show. That's, that's how much of a sinner I am, because I wanted to impress you with my showy watch. A couple rings, tattoos, do my hair, fluff it up, boom, boom, boom. And then I start to wonder, how much of this am I doing to get people to think something about me? And if I'm being totally honest, I'm sure a lot of it. I mean, I'm not going to come up here dressed like a hoodlum. You know, one of, one of my friends here, where, where is he at? Robert came in today, and he's all decked out in California gear, and he wanted to show me. It's like, check it out, Pastor. Cali gear says L.A., and then it's all red. I'm like, dude, you're straight out of the bloods. You look like a gangbanger. I love it. I love you, my people. Not, I'm not a gangbanger. Sorry, just clarifying. <laughs> I don't want that going viral. My pastor's a gangbanger. Pop, pop, boom, boom, thug, thug. No. I mean, I was a thug in a former life. Now I'm just a whatever this is. This denim shirted, pretending to be young, hipster thing, dude. But, but is it Jesus plus this identity for me? Because the math equation that we've gone over, it's got to be Jesus plus nothing equals everything because Jesus plus something equals nothing. When we add something to Jesus, we are taking away from Jesus' being our all. C.S. Lewis wrote brilliantly, and if you have not read this book, I commend it to you strongly. If you're not a reader, you will still like it. It's a book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's a book about a senior devil writing a junior devil letters on how to jack up a human's life. And it is as creepy as I'll get out. It's the same guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, a very prolific writer, one of the best writers of the last 100 years. And here's what the senior devil, Screwtape, says to the junior devil, Wormwood, in a clip of one of these letters. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the latest crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and physical research. Christianity and vegetarianism, reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Christianity and. And it's, it's frightening to think that it's so easy to slip into that. We have a multi-billion dollar industry, many industries that market to us, that billboard to us. This will make you happy. This will give you the joy you're looking for. This mutual fund will give you the security you want. This relationship will give you the happiness that your heart is craving. This is a Christianity and, 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 and. And it's only when we can finally come to the point that we realize I need Jesus plus nothing that we'll begin to find peace because in him we have all the approval that we need. We had disappointed the Father by our sin, but God earned back through Jesus Christ all the approval we could ever want. We worry about paying our bills. Jesus said, don't worry about that. I've got everything covered. Work hard, strive well, love others, but don't fret, don't worry because I am your God and I will provide all that you need to make it through this life and end up in eternity with me. So here's what happens next. Verse 3. They're going to go fight against this Christianity and syndrome. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed 
through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I just want to pause as a side note. I love people that bring joy. Do you, you have that friend that's so infectious whenever they're around you, you just smile and laugh? I love that friend. And this is what Paul was like. Paul was filled with the Spirit of God, and it said he was going to this meeting. He knew it was going to be a tough meeting, but he's bringing joy along the way. I want us to be, be people that bring joy wherever we go. Because there's, there's really two types of people, maybe a third type, but there's two types that we all know. We know the person that brings joy wherever they go, right? We like that person. We're like, thumbs up, love them, come over to my house, party, pizza, whatever. But then, here's what I don't want us to be. I don't want us to be the type of people that bring joy whenever they go. Do you catch the difference? Because we all have those people. We have the people who are in our lives, and you just can't wait for them to leave. And you do this thing, like I, I've studied body language and stuff, so I know that if your feet are facing someone, that's where your attention is. So wives, you can use this on your husbands. If your husband's chest and shoulders, knees and feet are aimed towards you, he's actually paying attention. If he's doing this and talking to you, he doesn't want to be in that conversation. He's saying, I want to be here, and if that's aimed at a door, that means he wants to be out there somewhere, but he's doing this to make you happy. I know, I'm sorry guys, I let out the secrets. Whatever. But, but there will be people, and, and now you all are going to pay attention to how I stand because you know that I'm doing this. Because sometimes here, some of you are talking to me and I know there's something I have to get to, so I try to be nice about it. I'll just do this for, at first, I'll one foot out. And then I'm like this. And then some of you all, you don't get the visual cue, so I'm doing one of these. Like, I got it. And I'll point. And I'm not saying that, that you're necessarily the type of person, but we all know that there's those people who are life drainers. Paul and Barnabas, these people who are followers of Jesus, were life givers. They brought joy wherever they went, and people were probably sad to see them go. And that's how it should be for us. People shouldn't be fearing when we come. People shouldn't be standing on their, their toes saying, oh, I can't believe this person's coming over. I don't want to entertain them. I can't stand them. We don't want to be that type of person. And if you are that type of person, pray and say, God, help me to be a joy bringer, not a joy robber, not a joy thief. Anyway, that was a side note. Let's keep going. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary. This is what the Pharisees did. Now, these were Pharisees who had come to Christianity. Paul goes and Paul says, this is what God's doing. He's saving people. And some guy gets up and says, we've got to circumcise them. Now, I'll tell you what, that might have been, if I were there and a Gentile, I'd be like, that's a deal breaker. Because we know that this is not a simple procedure. This is a surgical procedure. And they didn't have scalpels, they had like flint rocks. This is a no vote for me. But this is where, this is where Paul stood. And, it, and it's not just on the act. It's on the fact that there were these laws that had to be followed. And if you didn't follow them, then you couldn't truly be saved. At this time, the, the laws were packaged into 613 laws. And so I don't get the number right. 613 laws that the Jewish law was sort of boiled into. 248 positive commandments. Do this, do that, do this, do that. And 365 prohibitive or negative commandments. So they had a don't do for every day of the year. Talk about depressing. They could have had one of those cool flip calendars where you rip the page off. Don't do this or you'll die. Day three, don't do this or you'll get boiled. Like just going through it, just boom, boom. 
a prohibitive commandment for every day, and this is what they were trying to bring into Christianity. Do these things and you can live. This is the message that's pitched to us. If you follow this, 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 and you'll live. If you just obey every rule the right way, then you'll live. Here's the news flash that I've been pitching, and it's the only one that I'm going to pitch for the rest of my life. You cannot follow the rules. You cannot obey all of God's laws. You will fail. And if, if you haven't learned that yet, just read through the Ten Commandments, take one honesty step back and say, have I really done this? Because the answer is no. I mean, obviously we've got the lying one. Obviously we've got the uh, respecting and honoring your parents one. You know, respect and honor your mother and father. At that moment, I literally see mother's heads all turn. <laughs> it's the Lord said. That's day number 365. Failed. Day number 364. Failed. There's something that had to be done. Because Christianity is not a do these things and then you can live religion. It is very different. It's Jesus has done all that you need on your behalf. So now it's a free gift. As I've said before, and I'll say a hundred times, God did not send down a ladder and say, climb up. He sent down a cross, and Jesus climbed up on our behalf. So here's what happens in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They debated it. Are these guys right? Should they be circumcised? There's a whole crowd of Gentile believers coming in. They don't know our Jewish laws. They don't know all the things that we were supposed to do. They don't know the history of Moses, C, David, Goliath, boom. They don't know the Bible stories. Should we start imposing all of these laws on them? And then in verse 7, it says this. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. Okay, wait, I want to stop right there. Everyone who Peter is, it's Jesus' foot-in-mouth disciple, Right? He's the guy that uh, Jesus said, he said to Jesus, if it's you on the water, command me and I will come out to you. And Jesus said, come out to me. And Peter took a couple steps, started to sink. Jesus grabbed him up. Peter's the guy who said, Jesus, I will never deny you. Fast forward 24 hours, denied him three times. But now he's the leader of the church, this Peter. And right before this scene, Peter and Paul, Paul the apostle, had gotten in a beef, a church beef, if you will. They were up having lunch, and the Jewish people came, and Peter left the Gentiles, separated from one people group, and he went and sat with the Jewish people, and he was playing favoritism in a sort of racial way. And we're actually going to study that passage uh, next week or the week after. I haven't figured it out yet. But Paul stands up in the middle of this cafeteria area, this lunch crowd, and Paul busts Peter's sin in front of everybody. The head honcho Peter, one of the right hands of Jesus, just always there with Jesus all the way. Paul stands up, and I imagine Paul being a sort of gruffy, bearded guy, and he's always kind of aggro, so I think he jumped up on a bench or a stool or a table and said, Peter, in front of everybody, what are you doing? Why did you leave these people when the Jewish people got here? You know that's not in step with the gospel. Just busted his chops. He didn't come out, and as we're going to look at next week, he didn't come out and say, stop being racist. He went straight to the heart of it. What you're doing is out of a line with the good news of Jesus. Jesus came to break barriers, and you're here setting them up. So that, that happened before this scene. And that was in Paul's city. That was on Paul's turf. That was in Paul's hometown where he had his base, where he had his people, and he called out Peter. And now they're in Peter's turf. They're in Peter's hometown, and they're debating something where Paul's on the other side. So if you're Paul, you've got to be thinking, uh-oh. Peter just stood up. And I don't think Paul was afraid of anything. 
But you've got to wonder what he's thinking because he had busted Peter's chops and Peter had repented, but now they're not in Paul's home ground. But here's what Peter does, probably shocking to Paul and Barnabas. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart bore witness to them. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Man, Peter stands up and says, you guys, we've been arguing, should they do the law, should they not? Don't you remember? God just sent me to Cornelius, the Gentile, the non-Jew. God just gave me this amazing vision where, where if you're not familiar with the story, God said, Peter, I'm going to show you something amazing. And he had a sheet filled with all of the unclean animals. And God let it down and said, Peter, take and eat. And Peter said, God, I've never eaten unclean animals. I've never gone against that law of yours. And God gave him the vision again with all the unclean animals. It was the snakes and the pigs and all these things that the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. And they were all coming down in this blanket. By the way, side note, I think that's where we got the idea of pigs in a blanket. And side note. <laughs> and Peter said, take and eat. Or God said, take this and eat. God, God said, I'm coming to the Gentiles. And God poured his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. And they spoke in tongues. And it was different from what some of you and I would do and believe. You know, if the Holy Spirit came down here today and somebody started speaking in tongues, we would instantly see who came from which church background. In a lot of churches I've seen today, what they do is they, someone speaks in tongues and we're so excited that God's falling on somebody and we say, get the ushers and escort them out of here. No, we shouldn't do that. Now, is this, are we a charismatic church? I don't know. We have some charismatic people. Do we dance when we uh, sing songs? I, I don't know. I try to dance. I don't know if you'd call it dancing. Do we believe different things from one another? Yes. Are we going to find this core and fight for this core and keep this hand open with grace and love and charity? Absolutely. But here, Peter makes the stand. He says the core of the gospel, one of these closed-handed things, is that we're saved by faith. We can't put the law on these people. They don't know the law, and it gets even better after this. Verse 10 says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, the law? We cannot hold it up. Are you guys so thick-headed, is Peter saying to the people, that, that you're going to try to put on them what we ourselves could not even do? Some of you know that. You've been in churches long enough to know that, that we are experts at putting burdens on people, pastors, priests, bishops. I, I could really put burdens on you guys. I went to seminary. I know how to use guilt and shame. That's what they teach you. Not really, kind of. But since I've been in the church and listened to hundreds, if not thousands of sermons, I've heard the sermons that, that want to put expectations on you before they give you the keys. They want to say, if you just follow our program, when you get spit out of the end of it, then you'll be all that God wanted you to be. And as you've heard me say and will hear me continue to say, you are never going to be in your strength what God wants you to be. You need to come to the end of your rope because that's where God meets us, at the end of our rope, and say, God, I need you to be everything for me. And that's what he did in Jesus. And when we finally get to the end, when we could finally say, I can't, make this work, God. I need you. 
That's what we call faith. And that's what Peter says, we are cleansed by faith. We need to stop putting the yoke on people. We need to stop sending people out of church services feeling guilty, feeling ashamed. They can leave feeling convicted, but I don't want them feeling the yoke of some law on them that God said we were never intended to hold up. The law is our schoolmaster, intended to guide us until Jesus came. That's what Galatians tells us. When I was in uh, first grade, this is one of my traumatic stories. I think I'm still scarred from it. My teacher was Miss Jacobson. Miss Jacobson was what I would call your prototype first grade teacher. Blue hair, glasses, beady little evil uh, nose and eyes. And, and, uh, and she wore dresses only, always floral print dresses. And man, Miss Jacobson, she had it out for me. She had it out for me and my little seven-year-old um, ego. Because I told Miss Jacobson when I was uh, in first grade, I said, Miss Jacobson, I really got to use the restroom. I think I said I got to pee. And she said, no, you cannot use the restroom. And I was a little kid. I have a first grader now. I look at him and I think, man, if Jack's ever has a Miss Jacobson, I'm going to go in with the open hand of God to her. No, I wouldn't do that. I don't hit women. My mom would kill me. And I said, Miss Jacobson, I really got to go to the bathroom. And she said, you can wait till recess. Miss Jacobson, I really got to go to the bathroom. And she didn't let me go. So this little seven-year-old, this is a scar. <laughs> you could tell. I, my seven-year-old self sat there, tears coming down my face, wet myself. First grade, that's not a good career move for your social status. I mean, before that, I was the king of the tetherball court. After that, I was the guy who peed himself. My mom, single mom, single moms are the best. They're like angry bears all the time. She called up that principal. She came storming Norman down to the school, and she laid into that principal, laid into Ms. Jacobson. I was like, yeah, you take that, Ms. Jacobson. You and your blue hair go home. My mom said, if you ever have to go to the restroom again, you walk out of that class. And she said it with that tough mama bear. So I told myself, okay, my mom said, if I ever have to go to the restroom again, I get up and walk out of that class. Fast forward to seventh grade, science. Mr. Dodaro. He was a cooler guy. I always wore tight white pants. I didn't like that very much. <laughs> Mr. Darrow, I really have got to use the restroom. Tyrone, I sit down. Flashbacks going through my head, like from king of the tetherball to the guy that wet himself. I'm not doing this in middle school. <laughs> Mr. Dodaro, I really have to go to the bathroom. Tyrone, you could wait. It's almost break time. It's like 15 minutes away. Apparently, I'm part of the IBBC, the Itty Bitty Bladder Committee. Mr. Dodaro, this is really not going to work out for us. He said, sit down. Do not ask again. You cannot go. So then I hear Mama Bear's voice in my head. If that ever happens again, you get up and walk out that door. She didn't say it like that, but by this time I would worked myself up. So I believed that that's how it came out. So I got up, and I was like, well, I don't want to get in too much trouble. And this was in science class. So I walked to the lab where there's a sink, and the whole class is there. You know where this is going, right? So I don't need to share the end of the story. <laughs> After the sound of the zipper went down, he yelled me out of his classroom. And I walked out thinking, I'm so getting suspended, but my mom told me to do it. <laughs> that, you, you would not believe how much of a burden that, that whole scenario, first grade to seventh grade, has, has been on me. I still think of the shame that I felt as a seven-year-old. And the things that people would call me, I still feel the weight and the pressure of trying to measure up out of that. 
And granted, it, it only took a little bit of time because we're first graders. We're generally forgiving, and some kid wets himself at least once a year till second or third grade. But man, in religion, we, we compound that by a hundredfold. And we keep putting these burdens on people, and we don't let them take them off. We keep reminding people of their failures because I think that if we do that, it makes us feel like our head's a little bit higher. We keep judging our neighbors and comparing ourselves to others because it's an easier standard than to compare ourselves to God's standard by which we realize instantly we fall infinitely short. Today I want us to think about global Christianity in this lens, that we are going to be a very different and diverse group of people. And we need to learn to cling hard to the grace of Jesus, that God died for sinners like you and me, and keep this hand open with grace and love, to hug people, not to smack people. Because as this culture changes, as Christianity becomes not just this localized uh, group, but a much more diversely connected group, we're going to be a very unique bunch of people. I tell people all the time, they say, what type of church do you pastor? I say, we are a weird bunch. We've got some people straight out of the Stepford Wives movie. We've got some people straight out of the ghetto. We've got some people that know how to actually farm. We've got some people that if we're, there were an apocalypse and they had seed, fertilizer, and water, could not farm to save their life. We've got a very diverse group of people. We've got rich, we've got poor, we've got black, we've got white, we've got Asian, we've got Cubans. And that's what I love about this place, is that we're we're growing in this family, and it's so unique that I think we have an opportunity in Tampa to be this expression of what a multi-ethnic, intergenerational church looks like that believes different things, that behaves differently, but the thing that we hold up above all is that we will not be a church that is putting the yoke and the burden of the law on people without giving them the grace of Jesus to rescue them out from under it. That's how it works. Law for the hard-hearted, grace for the broken-hearted. If you're wondering how to parent, give the law of God to your kids when they're hard-hearted, and when they get broken, give them grace. I'll close with this, because this is a story that, that is bad parenting advice, but it actually works. Because some of you are thinking, that doesn't work. If you just give people good news, it doesn't work. This week, my son Jackson, got, um, they got color charts at school to tell you how bad or good they are. He's been good most of the year. This year, he got, uh, this last week, he got bad. He got a yellow or whatever was down there because he was talking, and then he shoved the kid out of his desk. So part of me is like, way to go. The other part's like, what are you doing? So he knows, no games that day, only punishment, no treats, no ice cream. I'm going to give Silas a double scoop, and you get a zero scoop. I was, I was heated. Nighttime rolls around. He's sad because he knows he gets nothing. So I said, Jackson, come over here, buddy. And I'm getting ice cream out for Silas, his little brother. And I make this big old giant ice cream cone. I said, Jackson, I want you to have this. You don't deserve it. You were, you were not making good choices at school yesterday or today. But I want you to get, have this ice cream cone because I want you to know that I love you even when you blow it. And I hope that tomorrow you'll remember that I love you and that that will change the course of your day tomorrow, that you'll make good choices. His eyes went from the teary, sad, puppy, destroyed look to total joy. And part of me as a dad thinks, He's pro he probably planned this on me. He knows that I wrote grace on my arm. This kid's manipulating me. He comes home the next day. Daddy, I got on pink, which is the best you can get. I was so happy. I just wanted to, to be the best boy that I could. Daddy, I even prayed for a friend, and I asked another friend if they believed in Jesus. 
I didn't tell him to do any of those things when I gave him the cone. I have in the past. I've said, you pray for your friends, you tell kids about Jesus, you protect the, the kids who can't protect themselves, you don't make fun of somebody, I'll beat you. I've told him all those things. But that day I just said, here's an ice cream cone because I love you. Remember that I love you tomorrow. That's what God gives you and I today. It's not one more stack of laws to just crunch your spine down. It's Jesus saying, you don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you. Go make wise choices tomorrow. That's how we're going to have to live in this new culture, this global church. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've helped me get over the scars of having to bear burdens of shame. I thank you that you've taken the law off of my shoulders. God, you know where you've taken me and every person in this room. Father, I know, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are people here who are being crushed by your burdens. Their parents have put the, your law on them in an unlawful way. They've put on themselves some notion of having to, to do this or do that, to add something to their Christianity to make life matter, when all that we need is your son Jesus, because in him we have the love that we are actually looking for. In him we have the peace that we're striving to find in a hundred different God substitutes. So now I pray that you would give us freedom. That you would free us from shame and guilt. And that that freedom, that we wouldn't take it lightly. That we, real, that we would realize it cost your son his life. God, give this church family such a high view of the law that we realize we can never reach it on our own. That we needed your son to come and pay the price for us. To live the perfect life that we could never live. To die the death we deserve to die to rise again so that we could be co-heirs and conquerors with you forever. We love you. This is all yours. In Jesus' name, amen.